You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Eyebrows were raised this week when Maui's COVID count exceeded Oahu's. There's also a cluster at the Maui Community Correctional Center. HPR's Kuve Hirishi has been tracking this story and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. The state public safety department continues to deal with that COVID-19 outbreak at the Maui jail. So far, 31 Maui inmates have tested positive for the virus. I think 26 right now of those are still active. They're in medical isolation. And there are also instances of staff with COVID-19 at OCCC and also at Halava. But all other facilities have been cleared of inmate COVID-19 cases. So that uh, has been in, in uh, a bright side for the department. Right now, uh, they're working with state and county health officials to offer inmates and staff COVID-19 vaccinations. Of course, that's contingent on supply. But Public Safety Director Max Otani says this week, inmates at Saguaro Correctional Facility in Arizona, as well as those at the Maui Jail, are being offered the first shot of the COVID-19 vaccine. The department began vaccinations of inmates last month. Uh, Here's Otani. Our Hawaii facilities, we offered vaccine approximately a month ago at Kalava and OCCC to inmates that were 75 and older. These are kind of in line with the community standards right now. We're working with DOH and, and the counties to bring vaccine to the neighbor island facilities also. I believe KCCC may have been the only neighbor island facility that has started the vaccination process on inmates. We are working on HCCC and Kulani, you know, as part of the roll-up plan for next month, early next month. So it sounds like, yeah, it's uh, kind of uneven across the board, right? Right. The neighbor islands took a little longer. So uh, Hawaii Community Correctional Center on the Big Island and Kulani are next in line early in March uh, in terms of, of vaccination. So these are offered, but there are people declining, according to Director Otani, he says uh, in terms of staff, they've got about 3,300 staff members. Uh, all have been offered uh, the vaccine, but about a third actually received the first dose. So there are folks declining the vaccine, both staff and also inmates. He did not have the exact number of inmates who declined the vaccine, uh, but he did give the example of Halava Correctional Facility, where all inmates over the age of 75 were offered, but about half. Are declined to get it. How are they doing on testing? They are continuing to test uh, all facilities. They've done a facility-wide testing uh, just to get ahead of these outbreaks. And in terms of total uh, tested positive under the pandemic, they're looking at about 1,900 inmates that have tested positive for COVID-19. Another more than 200 staff have also contracted the virus. And so uh, earlier this week, we've heard a public safety uh, reported another COVID-19 death at Halava amongst uh, one of the inmates. And that brings a total number of deaths uh, to nine, two up at Seguero and then the seven at Halava. I got to speak to a relative of one of the Halava inmates who died of COVID-19, Charlotte Manuel's brother, Bobby was set to be released last week after serving nearly three decades in prison. Uh, she says he was in the hospital for about three weeks at Palimomi before the hospital notified the family. And at that point, Bobby was set to be intubated and was uh, pretty much a vegetable, as she explains. Uh, here's Manuel. We cannot get any answers. Why did it take three weeks for somebody to call us. Still to this day, no one has told us, you know, and I've reached out to several people, including the Department of Public Safety, and there's just no accountability. So that's the only thing I can do right now is just to tell his story, you know, and if this is the reason that my brother had to pass away uh, is so that his death will make a difference, then I can be at peace with that. Oh, what a heartbreak, because he was just about to be released. Right, and that, that's just one of, you know, a dozen or so stories that we've been hearing from relatives 
of inmates who are, are really continuing to look for answers. Uh, Director Otani insists that in this particular situation that the department did reach out to family. It is protocol, agency protocol, for them to they're withhold the information when they have somebody, an inmate, hospitalized. They won't necessarily take that proactive approach and ask the inmate uh, if they'd like family notified, but if the inmate asks, the agency will try to set something up. And so that was uh, an interesting twist there. But this whole he said, she said situation surrounding inmates' deaths under COVID-19 prompted the Oversight Commission on Hawaii's Correctional Systems to request an analysis of these inmate deaths under COVID. And they're wanting uh, improved reporting. Public safety continues to use the privacy you know, uh, HIPAA and privacy arguments uh, for withholding some of that information, but Commissioner and retired Judge Mike Town doesn't buy that argument. I'm more interested in this fatality review to figure out how do we protect the next person? How do we protect the ACOs, everybody who could get caught up in this? And God forbid, again, how do we not have a bunch of lawsuits against public safety? Because when someone dies, gets everyone's attention, you know, so I'm, I'm not so much worried about confidentiality. I think confidentiality sometimes is the enemy of, of safety. Strong words from the commissioner. We know that the Oversight Commission has struggled in its first year to secure any funding for staff to carry out. They are actually the ones responsible or authorized to to run these investigations into things like inmate deaths or the, the particular situation of that inmate who uh, recently died without the family being notified early on. There are bills, <laughs> legislation going through the state legislature that could fund the Oversight Commission, but the commission didn't seem very uh, positive with the current economic state of uh, Hawaii right now. They're not sure they'll be able to secure that and carry out any sort of investigation. And were you able to talk directly to the new director? I mean, I haven't met him, you know, uh, since he came on board, but uh, yeah, were you able to talk with him directly at all? I did not talk to him directly. Most of the information I've gotten uh, from him comes through the Oversight Commission meetings, which has been nice that he would show up in instances in the past the director had not um, had sent someone else to come to these oversight commission meetings. So we have been seeing a lot of Otani. And my understanding from advocates and those in the community, he has a mindset of uh, re-entry support and the idea of really inmate-centered operations for the department. So he's been pretty forthcoming in, in what he can do and laying out the processes that are in place that may be uh, need some improvement, which he says he's, he's been open to. Yes, certainly you uh, do feel for the families who, you know, may have wanted an opportunity to say goodbye to their loved ones, um, you know, if they had only known uh, that they were that sick. Exactly, and, and that's part of this. We should say that there is a lawsuit that was filed by a Honolulu attorney, Eric Seitz, in these situations of inmates and staff that have contracted COVID-19, including those who have passed away. So that uh, will likely uh, be another development in this prison COVID-19 saga. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. That was HPR reporter Kuvehi Reishi. You can find her story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanities Restore, a home improvement store and donation center, open Tuesday through Saturday from 930 to 4, honoluluhabitat.org.
The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that make us a part of their communication strategy. Mahalo to Hawaii Dermatology and Plastic Surgery Centers, Kilauea Lodge, and Spa Hale Kulani. They believe, just as you do in the power of public radio, See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. A bill to tweak the Our Care, Our Choice Act is advancing at the state legislature. The pandemic highlighted access to physicians for the end-of-life program. Advocates say the need to allow nurses to prescribe medicines needed for the end-of-life care is still an issue in rural areas. Charlotte Charfin is a Big Island doctor with Life and, well, uh, Life and Death Wellness, a nonprofit community resource. She talked with us about a recent experience with a patient who died earlier this month. He had a prescription for end-of-life care but was not able to use it. Being an emergency physician, that is the world I live in of life and death. And I'm not saying it's easy because it's definitely not easy and every one of them are certainly different. But it's really... Uh, it's so hard to describe, but it's really, I'm just honored. I'm honored to be a part of that part of someone's life because I think it, scare, it does scare a lot of people, right? And it, that's not what it does to me. So you are one of two Big Island providers who can help to write prescriptions. Actually, I think we may now be up to three in 2021 from what I understand. So now you've got at least one doctor represented I'm in, you know, I'm in the North Kohala or the North Hawaii area, but I've helped people all over the entire island because there was such a lack. Now there is a physician that I know of in Kona that has written a prescription, and I do believe we have our first physician down in the Hilo area that has written one prescription this year. And you were with a patient, actually, I think it was the first one who signed up for this, correct? Kaiser actually has a great system in place. So any Kaiser patient stays within the Kaiser family. Um, they have a specific physician. They have, you know, nurse or navigators. And so I believe the, the Kaiser patients probably were the first ones on the island. I think I, I did have the first patient outside of the Kaiser um, system come to me. So I was the first doctor that lives on the big island to write a prescription because the doctors in Kaiser are actually on Oahu. And can you tell us a little bit about this patient's situation? You're talking about the first patient? Yeah, the, the one who you were just yeah. with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been with him now for a year and a half, so I can tell you can tell you a lot about his situation. He, we met because his primary care physician and because his specialist doctor both said, no, I cannot be a part of this. Um, the primary care doctor, it sounded like he was actually for it, but he was in a system that he thought didn't allow him to participate, which was actually not accurate. The specialty doctor just flat out basically said, no, I, I want no part of this. And so I got a phone call on my office line, and the, the patient found me because I have a big sign out in front of my office that says Life and Death Wellness. That's my nonprofit. And he, um, he figured I must know something about this law. And so the phone call I got was him explaining his situation, that he had a metastatic terminal cancer, and that he had asked his physicians for help and none of them would help him and that he felt abandoned and that he was hoping I would at least have a conversation with him. I listened to that phone call and first thing I did was I remember I was in my living room, I sat down and I cried. And I cried for two reasons. First was because it just broke my heart that this man had trusted physicians that either weren't allowed or didn't think they were allowed or just weren't gonna participate. And then the second reason was I was like, oh, wow, I'm really, asked, I'm really now being asked to do something that I do support, but before it was all theoretical, right? I'd never done it before. And now I was actually asked, being asked to go through the process. So uh, I was a little nervous uh, and also honored. And so anyway, I did call him back pretty immediately. And he said, so how's this going to work? You know, you write me a prescription and say, go have a, a nice death. <laughs> and I laughed at him and said, absolutely not. If I'm going to do this, I've got to get to know you. I've got to understand you. I've got to talk to you. I've got to spend a lot of time with you. And he said, oh, this sounds great to me. And the first day we met, I kid you not, I spent almost five hours with this man. 
and granted, I don't do that with every patient now, but it was my first one, and I wanted to know him, and I spent most of the time actually just getting to know him as a human being. I mean, we talked about the law, and we talked about the reasons and why, but that was such a small part of uh, our first conversation, and so that was the introduction to him. Explain to our listeners, mm-hmm. so he got the medication, but he yeah, was got, never yeah. able to use it. Correct. So he got the medication a year and a half ago. So he outlived his prognosis, first of all. So, you know, under the law, it's six months or less. And he clearly, by his scans, by all of his medical records, by everything that I that I saw charted, he certainly qualified for the law and, and his consulting physician um, also believed that as well. But this was an interesting individual. He, oh my gosh, he was so, something happened when he got that prescription. And that, that's what he would tell you. It was almost like he said, I think he said, I finally started to live. So for him, he accepted hospice, which he was a very private individual, and he wasn't really sure about letting other people into his home. But that's also part of the law. It's encouraged. You don't have to be in hospice, but it is encouraged. Um, And so I did encourage that. And um, he started getting all of these extra benefits that I don't think he realized he was going to get. I also introduced him to end-of-life doulas, which a lot of people maybe don't even understand what that is, but I think of them as coaches for people at the end of their life, kind of like a birthing doula, but they can be with you a lot longer than just the very end. And so he started accepting help as this very independent man that didn't, you know, that he he didn't want to die in an institution. He didn't want to be a burden. Um, He wanted to go out in his own kind of way. But what I found with him was he started embracing life even more. And this is a man that loved life. I mean, there was one point he told me, even if I'm in my bed and I can't get out of my bed, if I can smell the oranges, there's still joy in my life. And so he thrived for a very long time in hospice with a lot of care around him that I don't know otherwise he would have found had he not actually chosen to go through the process. And uh, it wasn't until probably about the last month that his disease really took a a shift, right? And you also have to also remember he's been pretty isolated because of COVID. So all of the support was really not as, you know, once COVID started, not as many people are coming into his home. Thank God for hospice, really, because that was the backbone of his support through a lot of this. But anyway, his disease about a month ago did start to change, and but it changed acutely to a point where, He was no longer mentally capable to make the decision to use his medication. And that, a lot of people were like, oh, no, that's a terrible thing. Well, what it did open up was something I never imagined. Um, I never imagined how much our community would come together to support this man because he didn't have family on island. He lived alone, and he had very little money. And so the question was always going to be, if he got in that state, which he didn't want to be in, right? But if he got there, what was going to happen? It took 19 days. Basically, we supported him for 19 days before he he finally took his last breath very peacefully. Wow. I mean, that's what a community does, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was a small community. And, of course, keeping his information private. So a lot of people didn't even know who the person was, but we started a GoFundMe. So we had a lot of money donated just because we have now a a North Kohala Community Caregiving Fund specifically for people just like him who are, you know, who may not have the the support of family or friends or the monetary ability to pay for somebody to come in. And then hospice, interesting enough, hospice, hospice, you know, our Northway hospice is amazing. I love, I love working with all the hospices, but um, I'm, I work a lot closer with them because that's, that's part of where I live, and I also volunteer for them. But um, they were able to use some of their funds to support paid caregivers. Um, I found out later because of um, there's a private donor, and because she had seen how hard it is for people to access the Our Care, Our Choice Act on our island, she made a private donation to our hospice to help support those patients. So he ended up qualifying for that to actually, not to get his medication, but to actually get more paid caregivers in. So between paid caregivers, funds from hospice, from what we were able to um, raise as a nonprofit, and then from volunteers, volunteer end-of-life doulas in our community, 
we managed to keep him in his home. And that was no small feat. I mean, there were plenty of times I just didn't think we were going to be able to pull it off and that he was going to end up institutionalized, isolated because of all the COVID restrictions and dying very much alone. Um, And that did not happen. And And I am so grateful, so grateful for that. And you mentioned COVID. What's been your experience with COVID in hospice? With COVID in hospice, of course, they have to be very careful, right? And so the, the biggest thing I've seen is where we've had um, really robust volunteers um, in the past that go in, they do a lot of respite care. That's not, it's really not as possible. I mean, there's still volunteers out there, and luckily he had a few that were able to um, come in through hospice. That's really decreases the amount of people you can bring into the home. And of course, they always still have to, you know, fully masked, that kind of thing. And so it was a challenge with him because we had multiple caregivers coming in right right? we had that was the only way he was going to stay there that right and that for him was really important as far as connection too this is a man that loved connection even though he was very independent being connected to other humans was so very very important and you're not going to get that in say a nursing home right i mean you'll have your your, a few of those caregivers but it's it's just so his experience was just so much different from what I think a lot of people that are dying, yeah. you know, institutionalized or in hospitals are, are having. You Can know, you- as an emergency physician, I, I mean, I, I'm so very much grateful for the people that are in the ICUs, the nurses, the doctors, and the emergency departments that are really getting hard hit with that, being there and holding these dying people's hands because their families aren't able to in a lot of the situations. We've been listening to Dr. Charlotte Charfin, who helped a patient live out his final days. She supports a bill to allow nurses in remote areas to write prescriptions under the Our Care, Our Choice program and to reduce the mandatory waiting period. The Senate Judiciary Committee is to vote on the bill tomorrow morning. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, featuring island-style lunch at the open-air Homa Cafe and galleries and courtyards open during extended weekend evening hours. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Join HPR Saturday, March 6th for a virtual concert with Sean Pimental and friends. It's an evening of traditional and contemporary Hawaiian music from one of the state's most accomplished music producers. Enjoy the magic of the Atherton studio in your own living room. Reserve your spot at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership, Wealth Management. Our reality check today, how lawmakers are looking at state budget, even as things are not looking as dire as many thought. Honolulu Civil Beats government reporter Kevin Dayton on the line. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Kevin? I'm good. Although, what's this about taxes? <laughs> well, there's that. Yeah, this is this is just there are always a lot of unknowns at this time of year. But there's a, a particular sort of fear down at the legislature because of some of the predictions that the governor made in his budget when he submitted it in December. He was predicting a, uh, a budget shortfall of $1.4 billion per year, which for a little state like us is an awful lot of money. Um as you just suggested, there are some signs that the situation has improved a bit since then, uh, thanks in, in large part to the bunches of, of federal pandemic aid that have been flowing into the state. And that totals well over $11 billion now, which, again, is, is a very large sum of money for a state our size. And that doesn't even include some of the money that was that was is, has been flowing in from the December pandemic package. And um, so that's helped quite a bit. And the governor had been talking or been warning people that, you know, they might have to consider layoffs and furloughs. And he he warned about the the need to raise taxes, although he didn't really detail that in the state of the state. No, but it's clear that the scenario has been changing at least somewhat. Um, Some of the things that have sort of come off the table, you know, the, the layoffs that he had proposed in his budget in December, that's off the table for now. 
Um, the worst of the cuts to public education have been walked back. Those were, were looking really dire for a time. Uh, there's still cuts, but it's not as bad as, as he had originally proposed. Um, public worker furloughs, where there's been a lot of discussion about that. That's on hold once again. Um, it could happen July 1st, but there's sort of a sense that it, it may not be necessary and maybe the, the negotiations with the public worker unions can come up with something else. And, and as you just suggested, Ige said in his budget, or said in his budget update, I should say, in January, he can do all this without raising taxes. That's, that's his, what he expects to be able to do. And, you know, there are also the, you know, the, the thought that, okay, you have to cut some programs if, if we do have a budget shortfall. Uh, so Ex yeah. how exactly. are lawmakers I mean, looking at that? What, he did all that, a, a large part of that, by making some deep cuts in some state programs. And you can see the, the discomfort in the legislature. Um, the proposed cut of about 30% to the sex abuse treatment program, that went over really poorly at the legislature. And, and lawmakers are determined to roll back that. There's the, the closure of the Youth Challenge program in Hilo. Uh, lawmakers don't care for that idea. A number of them don't. Um, there's also a very large um, obligation that uh, House Finance Chairwoman Sylvia Luke is concerned about, which is a $700 million loan that the state took out to cover the unemployment benefits for folks who were filing during sort of the peak unemployment period, that needs to be paid back at some time, and she thinks the state should take responsibility for that. Technically, it's the responsibility of the state's employers by law, but her view is that the state ought to take responsibility for that because it was the state that shut down the economy to guard against the uh, coronavirus. And then we're all expecting, you know, more relief from the federal government with a new administration. Um, but, you know, there are still some outstanding things. We've got the Council of Revenues meeting still that has to happen, so we have a better picture of kind of where we're at. Absolutely. We'll, in, in the month ahead, particularly in the weeks ahead, we'll learn a lot more. The Council on Revenues, which has the job of predicting state tax collections, they're going to meet on March 8th. Um, they're going to try and figure out whether state tax collections will improve somewhat, um, and if they do, of course, that will help with the budget, you know, the tight budget situation. The other the huge thing that's hanging out there is the new uh, pandemic relief package that's being negotiated in Washington right now. Um, frankly, there, there's hope that the state might get something on the order of a billion dollars, which would solve an awful lot of problems, uh, budget problems that the state's dealing with right now. So if we uh, are coming up on the budget deadline and we don't have better info... What then? Well, the, the state house has been dropping hints, and, and I think the Senate seems to be on board with that, that maybe they'll push off. Normally, the House version of the budget, the first draft of the budget coming out of the legislature, would be finalized in mid-March. Uh, but with all these unknowns out there, there's a sense that maybe uh, the House lawmakers won't have the kind of information they need to do the job right. And they may actually push off that deadline a little bit in order to, to basically put together a first draft it takes into account things like the federal aid and the newest tax projections. And I can't remember, have they done that before? Not that I recall, and I've been doing this for a while. Um, I don't remember them moving that particular deadline. They, they sometimes move internal deadlines around, but not that one. That one tends to be pretty hard because the Senate wants to pick up the budget and have their input as well. So usually they're pretty prompt about wrap, wrapping up the House version of the budget. Right. So, and then we'll have to just see how uh, things go, you know, with the vaccinations, with the uh, Consumer confidence, uh, you know, if the tourism bounces back and, and looks a little brighter. But uh, I'm, well, I'm glad we're, you're tracking that for everybody. <laughs> well, it's, been, it's going to be quite a year. It's really yeah. going to be something. All right. Thanks so much. That was Thank reporter you. Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. To read his stories on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. The Alzheimer's Association estimates that there are over 66,000 caregivers for those suffering from uh, the disease here in Hawaii. It can be a rewarding experience, but it can also be challenging. 
Anyone caring for someone experiencing memory and cognitive loss knows it's important to be up to date with best practices and the resources that are available out there to help. That's why the Alzheimer's Foundation of America is holding a free virtual educational conference for Hawaii residents tomorrow. The conversations Russell Subiono talked to one of the scheduled speakers. Gary Powell is with the Caregiver Foundation, a nonprofit based in Pearl City. So the, the mission of your organization, the Caregiver Foundation, uh, the mission is to provide practical and emotional support to seniors, disabled adults, and their caregivers. And you're a, you're a local nonprofit, right? That's correct, yes. Okay. And so I imagine that your mission also includes Alzheimer's sufferers and their caregivers living in Hawaii. What are some of the biggest challenges caregivers in Hawaii face today? Like caregivers in most parts of the world, the biggest challenge is being able to maintain their own health and to have time for themselves in and among all of the duties associated with caregiving. In today's current situation with the the pandemic, has it changed drastically? I mean, with the social distancing, has it had a significant impact on, on caregivers? It certainly has. For those who are caring for people in their own homes, it's complicated being able to take them out or have them participate in adult day programs. For those that have their loved ones in a facility or a foster home, the ability to go and visit has been severely curtailed. So they've had to get very creative. And when you're working with someone that has dementia, they don't understand very often this pandemic and the restrictions that it requires. So they end up feeling that they've been abandoned. So it's very difficult for both sides. And the the Alzheimer's Foundation of America their Educating America Tour virtual conference. That's coming up on Thursday, February 25th. This is a free virtual conference that will give participants an opportunity to ask questions of health, caregiving, and legal experts. What are some of the most common questions you get from first-time caregivers? Common questions? One of the first questions is, how am I going to afford to do this? So financial considerations are huge. Uh, in caregiving. Secondly, although there are lots of resources in Hawaii, uh, different types of services, different types of benefits, they aren't coordinated very well. So it's very difficult for someone to provide care and at the same time try to hunt down everything that could help them. So that is another question that we get is, where can I find or what is this? Is there any kind of help? That That's something that you're your foundation uh, is is able to do that's is that part of the assistance that you provide yes it is okay. we both provide the services uh, of coordinating someone's care and handling all that running around and research and frustration or we can try to find a resource for a specific need and do a referral a few of the topics that will be discussed during the conference include an overview of Alzheimer's disease and legal planning. You'll also be speaking at the conference. The title of your seminar is Deciding for One Who Cannot. Can you give us a little preview of what you'll be covering? I will be glad to. Deciding for One Who Cannot covers the tricky areas of making decisions for your loved one, whether those are day-to-day decisions, or whether they're legal decisions, financial decisions. It helps look at the, the practicality of it and things that have to be in place, but it also looks at the moral and the responsible way of making decisions. It's a very good look into ourselves to see if we're prepared for someone to make decisions for us, and it helps when you're faced with making decisions for mom and dad or auntie or, or someone in your care. A lot of times those decisions tend to be what we decide. And this uh, talk that I'm doing will help you kind of step back and look at making the decisions based on the person you are caring for. So it's a a great, easy, upbeat type of a a program. It's not a downer. It's just helping everybody look and get prepared so that if you have to face this, this part of life, you'll face it with a little more confidence and a little less stress. I grew up here and... I get the sense that Hawaii is a special place in terms of multi-generational families and adult children caring for 
their parents? Do you know the numbers on what percentage of our of our population are caregivers as opposed to maybe another part of the country? Are we pretty high or are we a, a state that has a lot of caregivers? The last figures I saw put individuals at about 60% of the population that are either providing care or involved in someone's care. That's not that far off from the rest of the nation. If you were to break it into personal care versus professional care, we're definitely higher on the personal care, uh, primarily because of an economic restriction. We don't have as much money as it takes to provide good care to someone. In the mainland, you have many, many more options for care. But Hawaii is unique in another way. We expect to take care of our loved ones. We're not expecting them to go off on their own on some iceberg somewhere. We want them with us. We want them close. One of the problems that caregivers face is we have a hard time accepting the fact that for those who are aging, caregiving responsibilities are a way of kind of saying goodbye. I imagine the... um the spirit of the of the of caregiving here probably ties into a lot of the the types of cultures that that reside here. Do you see a connection between? I, I do. Yes, okay. that's definite. Especially from the, oh, I don't want to say less developed. I don't know another way to say it, but societies that are not as economically advanced, perhaps as the United States, tend to have a higher level of personal care in the family. And those folks coming here and the second generations here maintain that type of feeling. Unfortunately, we see as those generations go on, it becomes less and less something that people are expecting to do. Uh, one, one last question, Gary. What's the most important thing a caregiver should know? I imagine that there's just a lot of information out there. I imagine that taking on a caregiving role can be a pretty significant change to someone's life. What's the most important thing you, you think a caregiver should know? One of the things that often comes up in the support group is the idea that you're not alone in this. I think that's the most important thing. Be able to reach out, ask for help, learn how to join our support group or someone else's and be able to access resources and know that others are going through the same thing you are. It helps that sense of isolation. Thank you so much for your time, Gary. Thanks very much. Take care. That was our Russell Saviano talking with Gary Powell, founder and executive director of the Caregiver Foundation. You can still register to attend tomorrow's free virtual uh, conference. Go to the Alzheimer's Foundation of America's website or click on the link on our conversation uh, page of our website, uh, our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute. University of Hawaii Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the I.O. The I.O., or Hawaiian stilt, is an endangered water bird found only in the Hawaiian Islands. They stand about 16 inches tall, have glossy black backs, bright white fronts, and as their name suggests, really long pink legs that allow them to wade in deep water looking for crustaceans and worms. Their long legs also make them difficult to confuse with any other bird species. I.O. are considered to be the kinolau, or physical manifestation, of the Hawaiian god Ku in his fisherman form. I.O. were once much more common in Hawaii, but loss of wetland habitat and introduction of mammalian predators has reduced their population to less than 1,500 birds. Hawaiian stilts built their nest on the ground near shallow wetlands and are known to aggressively defend their nests by dive-bombing and loudly scolding any animal, including humans, that comes near.
For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Dr. Mike and Sharon Scott for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about how to help protect rare and endangered birds and plants at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Manu Minute, a Hawaii Public Radio's weekly feature on Hawaii Songbirds, is a podcast. Subscribe to Manu Minute through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or with your favorite RSS feed. NASA released the first images transmitted by the rover Perseverance this week after successfully landing on the surface of Mars. Photos and video captured scenes of jubilation from the mission control team at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California following the touchdown last Thursday. A member of that team hails from Hawaii. Christopher Pong is a guidance and control engineer at NASA. Pong grew up in Kaneohe on Oahu. He attended Kapunahala Elementary and Punahou School. He built model rockets with his dad and remembers first hearing about the NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL, at Future Flight Hawaii, an educational space camp on Hawaii Island, uh, before going to Harvey Mudd for a bachelor's degree in general engineering, followed by grad school at MIT. Uh, he's now been with NASA since 2014. Pong spoke with HPR's Jason Ubai about that historic day and his role in the mission. When I first started at JPL, I started working on a project called Asteria. And it was actually a project uh, that I had started as a grad school at MIT. We wanted someone to take it to take it all the way to space. And so JPL was really interested in finishing the project. And so me and actually one other grad student at the time, we both ended up working at JPL and uh, working on this project. And it's basically a small space telescope about the size of a shoebox. It launched in 2018 <laughs> and was designed to study nearby bright stars and look for exoplanets around them. Uh, similar to what uh, previous missions like Kepler and TESS have done, but um, focusing on the really bright stars, such as Alpha Centauri. That's in uh, around Earth's orbit right now? So it was, um, it got launched uh, up to the International Space Station and just sort of pushed out the airlock basically. And it, Let's see, it, it burned up in Earth's orbit, I think is uh, March 2020. So it lasted about two years in orbit, and we lost communication with it a few months before it was supposed to burn up. It completed all of its primary objectives, and people were working on some really cool technology applications after that. One of the cool things is that it, it did confirm, it was, it, it was a technology demonstration primarily, and is able to prove really precise pointing. And also uh, as a technology demonstration that you know, real science can be done on CubeSat. So this was a CubeSat. Yeah. Um, what was your role there and how long you've been working on this and uh, what was your role on the team getting to the last week? So I started on the Mars 2020 project uh, in 2016 and my role on it was as a cruise attitude control subsystem engineer, ACS for short. And what the subsystem does is it does three things. It turns the spacecraft. So it gets, first of all, it has to determine what the attitude of the spacecraft is, the attitude being the orientation in space. Uh, it does that with a couple of sensors primarily, so a sun sensor and a star scanner. With that information, it then can fire the thrusters so that it can turn to point at the sun, point at the earth, and it also performs trajectory correction maneuvers, uh, TCMs for short. 
uh, and those are used to adjust the trajectory from uh, as Perseverance is flying from Earth to Mars. As you're developing this technology, what are the biggest challenges that that you're you're facing? What what could go wrong as it's getting from Earth to Mars? <laughs> uh, well, I guess Mars 2020 is kind of a a different mission in the sense that a lot of it has relied upon heritage, at least for the the cruise stage uh, and the cruise phase of the mission. So um, a lot of the software and hardware were largely the same as previous missions. So in that sense, it was very uh, similar. You know, we had, uh, there weren't any new challenges. Uh, honestly, the biggest challenge was really just making sure that um, the knowledge of these past missions got transferred to people such as myself. Our team was composed of a lot of younger engineers and just needed to make sure that we didn't, you know, miss any important pieces of information that, uh, you know, the previous people who have worked on uh, the past missions um, had, you know, didn't pass along, so. So there's a lot of institutional knowledge at NASA that needed to be passed down. Uh, to you guys, the uh, the younger staff members, did you have more veteran engineers and scientists uh, working on the project? Uh, yeah, yeah. We, I guess, the way we really handled that institutional knowledge transfer was through uh, you know meetings. Uh, we called them GNC or Guidance and Control, GNC Technical Advisors Group. So every so often we'd present uh, you know either test results or analyses. Um, and during, we had a lot more of them throughout the actual operations phase, presenting, you know, what we did and how it all happened. And, you know, they'd give a lot of really good insights as to, you know, oh, maybe you should think about this or look into that more. So, yeah, that really helped. And we're definitely standing on the shoulders of giants here <laughs> with uh, all, of the, all of their help. How were you feeling on thurs uh, Thursday when the Perseverance was about to to land on the surface of Mars. Yeah, I mean, there was just a, a ton of different emotions, excitement, um, excitement beforehand, uh, and also definitely apprehension. <laughs> you know, there's so many things that could go wrong. Uh, we're looking at the telemetry very closely at the very end, and, you know, any tiny little deviation from uh, what was nominal, you know, was really looked under the microscope and uh, you know, sort of blown out of proportion in the sense we had this really big heightened sense of paranoia uh, just before landing. Yeah, during the landing itself, I mean, it was crazy. Like, I couldn't even think. Uh, I could hear all the chatter around me, like, oh, is this expected? Should this have happened yet? Why haven't we seen this? But, you know, everything went according to plan. <laughs> There's tons of joy and relief after we successfully made it on the ground. And actually, a, a little bit of sadness. You know, my the team uh, was about five people. I was the one that was uh, selected to be there uh, on that shift on landing. And you know, it's kind of sad that I wasn't able to be there with them, uh, people that I worked closely with uh, over the past few years. So the room was uh, filled to about half capacity. If you look at some of the previous um, of other missions landing in the past, yeah, you'll see that there are a lot more people there. And now, due to COVID-19, uh, we had to really reduce the amount of people to make sure that it was safe for everyone. And we had to be spaced apart. We all had to wear N95 masks. Yeah, normally there would be at least two or three people from uh, from our subsystem there. But because of that, we had to pick one. And I was that lucky person that got to be there. Now that the uh, rover has landed, what is your uh, task there now uh, and role? at the during this mission yeah so uh, my role on mars 2020 is largely over uh, there's a little bit of work for me to do to reconstruct basically what happened for cruise attitude control uh, right before landing and also uh, throughout cruise itself um, but beyond that my next project that i'm working on is called the sample retrieval lander so Perseverance uh, will now start collecting samples on Mars. 
and uh, it'll find a, a place to leave these samples. And this next mission, sample sample retrieval lander, will actually uh, drive its own rover out to these samples, collect them, uh, bring it back to uh, a rocket that it has brought. Uh, it'll bring it back to a rocket that was brought along with the lander, and it'll be uh, launched into Mars orbit. And then another mission will actually uh, catch that sample and bring it all the way back to Earth. So it'll be exciting. Well, and um, when will that? Um, when will the 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 rocket holding the sample? Uh, when will that be launched? And I guess when can we expect to have some Mars rocks on Earth? You know, I'm not. I'm not actually sure of the exact timeline. Uh, partially because it, it's still a little bit up in the air. Probably the most firm dates, which are still very much not firm, uh, is the launch date of the sample retrieval lander. That's either going to happen in 2026 or 2028. Uh, so it'll be a while before these samples actually make it back to Earth. Uh, it'll be sometime in the 2030s. That was Hawaii's Christopher Pong, a guidance and control engineer at NASA. He was talking with the Conversations' Jason Ubai about the Mars 2020 mission. That's it for us today. Tomorrow, we hear about postal crime in the islands. Have you been a victim? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. Email works too, talkback at hoypublicradio.org. And want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Thank you.